Hello, and welcome to this episode of Special Ed Rising, No Parent Left Behind. I'm your host, Mark Ingracia, and I have over 34 years of experience as a classroom teacher, parent coach, and advocate. This is a podcast for parents and caregivers of children along the spectrum of disabilities, but welcomes everyone interested in learning about topics from the world of exceptional needs, educational services, health and wellness, fitness, nutrition for you and your child, and more. Thank you so much for joining me. And if you like the show, please subscribe, like, comment, and tell your friends about it. I've started a GoFundMe fundraiser for a family in need of a new home and a new healthy start. If you're able to donate, please go to my website, specialedrising.com, and click on GoFundMe. No amount is too small. Thank you. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Gretchen Levine, Transition Specialist with the Weinfeld Education Group. Ms. Levine assists students to plan and obtain services for transition from high school to post-secondary life, both as a transition teacher with Catherine Thomas School and through her work with Eric A. Levine and Associates. She has presented at local, state, and national conferences on a variety of topics related to inclusion, self-direction, transition planning, and customized employment for individuals with disabilities. As a supervisor and director of the Arc of Frederick County's Local Services Program, Gretchen was able to implement many new initiatives to enhance community support for children and adults with developmental disabilities. Gretchen worked with the Waystation in Frederick, a psychiatric rehabilitation program to help develop employment programming for people with developmental disabilities and mental illness. Gretchen focused on individual outcomes through customized employment planning and the use of local, state, and federal funding streams for staffing of these services. Ms. Levine earned a bachelor's degree in special education from Hood College and her Master of Arts Education and Human Development at the George Washington University and is a certified special education teacher. Now let's get smarter and join me in welcoming Gretchen Levine for another win. Good morning, Gretchen Levine. How are you? I'm well. How are you today? I'm great. I'm great. It's a beautiful day, and I'm so grateful for your time that you're giving us. I think uh, this is a really, really important topic, and I've met so many parents in recent times that are going through the transition period or they're about to go through it, and what I've discovered is that each one of them has their own story. Some are more prepared, some have no clue, and some are kind of like on the fence as far as where to go, and so I thought this is a really important topic to find a professional to speak to. So it means a lot to me that you're here. And I think it means a lot to the, it's going to mean a lot to these parents. So thank you so much. How long have you been in the, the transition field doing this work? You know, really, I think at the start of my career, which was as a residential counselor, when I was getting my bachelor's degree in education, is when I started my career in transition, because I worked with two ladies who really taught me a lot about what the world of transition looked like and what it needed to look like. Uh, mm -hmm. So that was back in 82, 81, 82. So a long time. I've been around <laughs> a long time. And those, those ladies really, I really say they were my best teachers um, about the world of disabilities and services. And I was young. So I was learning these things for myself as well as trying to teach them how they needed to grow up and learn to use the bus to get to and from work, learn to use the bank, 
Uh, one mm-hmm. lady learned to use the bank very effectively on her own. We learned. We did, mm-hmm. as residential counselors, in teaching those independent living skills, things like hiding behind bushes to watch somebody travel to and from work to make sure that they were you know, really getting all the safety wow. measures, you know, things like that. That's so that's great. I, yeah, I had that hands-on experience. And then mm-hmm. after I was a residential counselor, I worked with the ARC and in my community, my home community. And so I got to know all of these incredible families who were really working hard to figure out the best possible outcomes for their sons and daughters. And The first thing that they would talk about is their story, like you were saying, and what was going to happen to their, the first thing they thought about when they had, when they realized that their child had a disability. So Mm -hmm. sometimes this was right at birth, but sometimes it was later. Mm -hmm. Their biggest concern is what is going to happen when I'm not here to take care of them. And that just really made a big impression on me. And, Mm -hmm. you know, seeing what was available for people at that time back in the 80s. That was at the beginning of deinstitutionalization in Maryland. So there weren't a lot of community-based services. Everything mm-hmm. was out of the institution. You know, if, if you, in the 60s, if you had a child with a disability and you needed help, that, that was what was offered. You could place them in an institution. So there was no community. It was the only option. Pardon? Yeah. It was the only option. It was. It was. So the deinstitutionalization movement was big right as I was coming out of college. And developing services was also really important at that time in every community uh, to address the needs of people who were coming out of institutions, living in their community and needed services. And, you know, everybody very well intended, but the opportunities that are available now for students were not available back in that at that time. You sure, know, during the sure. day you went to a workshop and you stuffed envelopes and then you unstuffed envelopes. You screwed screws and then you unscrewed screws. It mm. was, I mean, no wonder people had behavior problems, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, so, the monotony of all of it. So transition excites me because there are a lot of possibilities and there are a lot of communities. Uh, in the country that are doing some incredible things. They're creating entire communities within communities where people can live right alongside their brother, sister, their neighbor, and have jobs and be a part of the community, but also get support. And Mm -hmm. I just love the innovation. And, And by and large, that is parents who are creating those services. Mm -hmm. Um, so the parents' just, involvement is so important. It it really is. Yeah. So I really feel like people that I've worked with, individuals with disabilities themselves, and parents have been my really my best teachers. I did go back to school after my kids were grown up and uh, uh, get my master's in transition special education, and I got cert- I got my special ed teacher certification and. I really loved working in the high school and helping families that way uh, to Mm -hmm. start planning really early on to line them up for what was going to happen when their kids exited special ed. 
It's no. I, I hear I hear the word early on, and that's my real first question for you uh, about this content. I just wanted to refer back real quick because I knew when I was teaching there were a lot of parents who had their kids and they said, well, they're going to be with me forever. So, and I just thought, you know, well, what if something were to happen to you? You know, you want to make sure that you're preparing them to be able to live at least in a group facility, if not independently or, or in some place where they can get a job, manage on their own to some, whatever degree that they're capable. But the parents seem to be like, no, you know, going to have, we have a, we'll have a a separate apartment for them and they'll live home. And, and then what happens to them, right? So getting people to be educated on what's out there. And then I said earlier, there were parents, literally their kids are 16, 17 years old, and they still haven't even started the process, or they're not even aware enough of the process. And so when right. you say early, that's that's the key, I think. So my first question being that the IEP is the, the tool that guides a child towards relevant transition out of secondary level, a scaffolding that builds on itself, strengthening and informing a goal, which is a smooth and appropriate trans- transition. I believe that's how it works in Maryland. And I believe from everything that I've been reading and learning, like that is the way to go. And it's funny because when I was a teacher, the IEPs, it was never really something that was stressed that this was a scaffold towards transition. You know, it was year to year, but it makes so much sense. And after all these years hearing it, I thought, wow, of course, of course that makes sense. So, um, you were saying a lot of different, a lot of states were doing really great work. Do you feel like there's uh, equity in the in the states that are doing this, or do you feel that some states are doing it better than others? And do you feel like this is the way that is the correct approach to start young and build towards the transition? Well, it is federal law, um, mm-hmm. and so the whole uh, point of idea is to provide that coordinated set of activities that lead to that that student being as successful and independent as possible, living, working, continuing their education, having friends, being part of the community, all of that is in the law. And so what I've run into is there are, there are school systems that are doing a a tremendous job with that and communities, but there are also school systems where, they're just filling in a cookie cutter template IEP so they can check a box and it's meaningless. Their transition plans are absolutely meaningless. They have nothing, you know, just nothing to them. And I've seen a variation even in Maryland. You know, there's some communities in Maryland, the more affluent communities, uh, the more metropolitan communities have a lot of transition resource and options available. Mm-hmm. But you get out into the more rural areas, and that's not as true. Okay. Um, so I think that, and then what What I was mentioning to you the other day in North Carolina just baffles me that there are these caps on what the state will spend on students. And that's all being wrestled out legally. You know, there's been back and forth with uh Leandro in North Carolina, for example. But unless you've got a group of advocates or parents who are pushing the system to do what it's supposed to do, it's there's right. going to be variation. I think what we need to do is really highlight what's possible out there and have optimism mm-hmm. for that and help parents to know. Because even in systems where they're not doing a great job. If a parent 
knows what's possible and can get other people in the community on board with helping them, they can create an effective transition plan. Ideally, they shouldn't have to do all that work, but... Why do you think it is that state schools aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing? If it is law, why are there, why are there people out there who, there who are ignorant of the process and they're not getting the services and the information that they need? I think it's funding. The, the federal government never yeah. fully, has never fully funded IDEA. Um, okay. And then we need folks to implement and hold school systems accountable. Because if you have a state with a block grant of money and they can determine how those funds from the federal government are going to be spent, they, they're going to allocate it how they want to allocate it. Mm-hmm. And sure, sure. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, because I know New York, we were speaking the other day, I know New York has been really poor when it comes to uh, allocating funds for special needs. And Maryland's mm-hmm. like fourth or fifth in the country in, in the top five, you know, which is, yeah. which is fantastic. But New York's not even in the top 10. And that surprised me. But it goes to the fact that they have this money and they can do whatever they want with it. And they decide right. where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not a fan of block grants. And that came along. Mm-hmm. I believe that came along in the Clinton administration and, you know, giving states the authority to determine how the funds would be dispersed through block grants. Mm. And I, I, I think it, we need to look at, you know, that's where you get into the real infrastructure, you know, kind of refocusing on, on transition for individual families. You asked me about team members and who should be, you know, a part of these team meetings. Yeah, who are the, yeah, exactly. Who are the people that are involved, right? Yeah. So I think, um, first of all, transition should start at age 14, ideally. Uh, some states don't want to start till age 16. Uh, some, some families are thinking about it in middle school. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it seems like middle school would be a seem to be a, a decent time to do that because you're re- getting ready for the transition to the high school yeah. level. So it makes sense to me that middle school would probably be the best place to do it to start. I, yes, I agree with you. On the one hand, on the other hand, I think we need to be careful developmentally. Mm-hmm. I don't think that our students are always ready to decide what they're going to do in the with their life in eighth grade. And oh, they, I they, agree. Yeah. 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 And, and I don't mean but, to paint such a broad brush. I mean, it's, it's all individual. And what I mean really is not that they necessarily know where they want to go, but according to, if we're scaffolding IAPs as, as we should be, then the indications of that are, are starting to point in certain directions that we open up op- these options to the kids. We start considering these options. Not that the kids necessarily know at that age. I'm just thinking that this, the system and the schools and the teams start to come together to be preparing for these this transition to high school and then beyond that. Right, right. I that agree. Sense? Yep, okay. totally. Ideally, you want your transition coordinator at that IEP meeting, uh, the school psychologist, because assessment is part of this process. It you know, really depends on the school system and how they're set up. Some Some high schools even now don't have designated transition staff. As you know, as a special ed teacher, it's your job job description plus all these other areas that you need to cover, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah so sure. it a lot of times uh, it the case manager has to take on that role of being the transition person. 
but ideally, you, you know, you have someone who is specifically addressing transition. And you also need your administrator, and, and that's probably true for any IEP meeting, but you need somebody at the meeting with the authority to talk about what type of plan is going to be in place for the student. Are we looking at a four-year, a five-year, or a six-year pathway? And I always encourage parents to slow down with that. Their students are eligible for special ed until they're 21. Right. And and in some states, I think in New York, until you're 20, it actually Did it change runs to up. To the, I think it, I, you know, don't quote me I've on always, that. I've always heard 21. I know after the pandemic, they allowed students to come back another year. So they made, mm-hmm. they moved it to 22. I don't know if it's still there or not. And sometimes it depends on when the birthday happens in the school year. Um, So I've had students stay past their 21st birthday till the end of the school year. But nonetheless, um, some parents and some students get caught up in the idea that I want to finish and get out of school. I need to be out of here ASAP, Mm -hmm. right? Right. And um, once that horse is out of the barn with students, it's very hard to turn that back. You know, and to say, no, no, I think I think you'd really benefit from a five year or six year plan. They're like, no, I don't think you know, once that's you're where, out, coming back. Yeah, yeah. 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 Or once you start to think that I'm going to be out, um, okay. especially for some students who get locked into a certain way of thinking um, and it's hard for them to let that go. Can you give and me that, a for instance? Um, I, I often find students on the spectrum have a certain, a very rigid way of thinking about uh, their outcomes or what their plan is going to be, and okay. not not just students on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked with one young lady who her idea was that once she was done with school, she could stay home, watch TV, <laughs> and eat what she wanted because that's what always happened when school was over, right? right. So that's what she thought was her future. Um, Mm -hmm. So just, you know, I think it's important uh, to get everybody on the same train of thought early on. I I want to let you continue, but I want to touch base later on this, because since you just brought up the idea of going home and doing nothing, the idea of being involved during your high school career. I love that question because transition really, it, it hinges on student involvement and participation. And that's going to vary based on the student. Mm -hmm. And for some students that I worked with um, in my most recent past in the high school, I could sit down and have a conversation with them about what they were thinking about in the future, what they liked to do, what they were good at doing, um, where they saw themselves five years from now, for example, and and get a really good idea of of what would be important to them. For mm-hmm. other students, that would be really, really difficult. And in both scenarios, I think getting input from the family is really ideal. You want the caregiver, whoever that may be, uh, you want their input about right. Because sometimes students, and you know, a lot of students would say, and I think this is true both in special ed and regular ed, I'm going to be an NFL player, or <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to be the next Beyonce, or you know, what have <laughs> right, you, right? right? Exactly. 
because uh, they're down in the basement singing away and everybody's That's saying, exposed to yeah, it. right. How great right. they are, right? <laughs> right, right, right. So it's also, that's really a great time to start exposing students to what, how entry-level job positions. Because another uh, challenge for students is they think, well, I'm going to be X, Y, or Z and that's where I'm going to, that's exactly what I'm going to do when I leave school. I'm going to be the head of my corporation or, you know, they're skipping through the developmental process that we all have to go through with work, which is that mm-hmm. first job that we have at McDonald's or babysitting right. or, you know, learning mm-hmm. to show up on time, learning to do what our boss asks us to do, getting along with our coworkers. Because that harkens back to being involved through your high school experience and getting yes. yourself into situations where you're part of a group where you need to show up on time when there's a scheduled, whether it's a game or an event, uh, mm-hmm. being responsible for the others, being able to get along with others. It's all the same. And that's right. kind of like, that's the training ground for it. Exactly. Exactly. Ideally, your transition coordinator is going to sit down with your high schooler and talk about these areas. And then they're also going to sit down and talk with mom and dad or whoever's in the role of caregiver. Mm -hmm. And what I would do is I would spend about an hour with families and go through a whole list of areas that they needed to start thinking about in ninth grade. Not that they needed to take care of all of those things, but just that they needed to know that they were on the horizon. One example, and because it's overwhelming. You know, adult services are, are, yeah, and they're all disjointed. Um, There's a separate application process many times for each one of them. There's not one main application process that folks go through. It's very layered. It's very nuanced. I think one good example of really the importance of educating parents is about social security benefits. And a lot of families don't want to think about, oh, I'm going to apply for these benefits for my student. They don't want to think about that in ninth grade. They want to think about, oh, well, you know, he's doing so well in school and maybe he'll get certified to do a job in a restaurant or Mm -hmm. some other, you know, be in some other capacity and be self-sufficient and he won't need, he or she won't need these benefits. So... I don't even want to go down that road. We're not people who take from the system. And there's a lot of of strong feelings about that whole area. But the reality is adult services hinge on your ability to get adult services now hinges on whether or not your son or daughter meets eligibility for Social Security benefits and Medicaid, because those are the two vehicles that are used to fund it. And then the other piece of that is you can't for you can't have more than I believe it's very close to $2000. I'm not sure the exact amount uh for social security, but it's based on disability and it's also based on your resources. Okay. So families need to start thinking about setting up a special needs trust and they need to do that before their student turns 18. So it's good to know that at 14. And it's good to yeah. start talking about why you would even go through this process, especially families who have the resources to take care of their son or daughter. Mm-hmm. Because the other part of that is, is that 
you may need to access those publicly funded adult services. There may not be a price, even if you can afford it. And we're talking a lot of money to pay for annualized services. But even if you could afford that, in your specific community, there may not be a provider that accepts private funding. They all might be tied to public funding. Mm-hmm. So it you don't really want to important to know that. Yeah. 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 You don't want to limit yourself in that regard. Right. And um, this is something that a case manager wouldn't would lead them kind of guide yes. them through. Right. Can I just ask you a quick question? If a person I, I know one particularly is 17 years old through the through through her process. Um, mom still hasn't really started or is just aware of it now. How does that get skipped and who does she go to? I mean, if she doesn't know she even has a case manager, how does she find out about that? Does she have um, to just go to the administration and, and request mm-hmm, it or? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And it can be hard, especially if you're in a regular, if you're in the uh, typical high school program, post COVID, a lot of teachers left. And so you've got a lot of new teachers who don't have that historic knowledge of how things work. Right. So I would um, say if there is, there are a lot of support groups and programs out there to teach families about okay. transition. And I was going to send you a list of, of links because they're be wonderful. Yeah. There's okay. some that are right in your community, but there are also some that are nationally based. Okay. So you have. Yeah, I can post that in my resource page on my website. That would be great. 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 Yeah. yeah. I'll put yeah, that together. Let's do that. Yeah, sure. Thank, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the parents getting involved in the process from early on, do you think that they should be thinking about it just around the same time, around the, the same time the child's 14? Or are there programs for parents whose children are younger to start getting their mindset in that direction? So when it comes time, when your child mm-hmm. hits, like, if we're saying 14, that they're more prepared for the for the process. Is there anything that can happen before that, or is it not generally done that way? Well, so there are things that are done outside the school. Uh, the ARCs, oftentimes Autism Society, other groups, uh, like for example in Virginia, the parent, it's called P-E-A-T-C. Um, all that to say, there are groups that focus on transition. And educating mm-hmm. parents, and they're not gonna, they would welcome parents of any age to reach out to them. And a lot of times you can just view a webinar on the area that you're interested in, specific mm-hmm. to your state and your community. Right. I will send you information on how to find those support groups in your area. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting going back to what you were talking about before, how long it can take, the amount of work that goes with it. I mean, this is. Mm-hmm. Also, while parents are trying to get services, and that can take a long time, um, right. applying for services, requesting services, there's, there's such an overwhelm for parents when it comes to the amount of paperwork and process that it frustrates me to hear that schools aren't on top of it when it comes to the transition component, right. because services pretty much end, right? right. You're out of high school, you're so used to, if you get services, you're used to getting services, or you're used to the availability of the possibility of them, and then you're on your own. So like, this is a very right. dark world out there if you're, if you don't know what's going on and just to know your rights alone is, I think there, I think that should be an education in and of itself and offering for parents to know your, know your rights. I, I agree. I hope the schools offer. Yeah. And it's never too late. 
It's never too early. It's never okay. too late to start planning. And it, you know, it's one of those That's things. That's good for, news. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For families, it, it's not, it is overwhelming. They're already maxed, you know, they're, they're working, they're managing a child who has special needs. And then they've got to deal with all of this overwhelming paperwork. And there's an emotional component to it, an acceptance component of, you know, at each milestone in a child's life, you have to go back through that whole process of accepting that your child has special needs. Mm. And you're going to have to plan for the rest of your life sure. to make sure they're okay. And that, that can be really hard for families. Right. What are some of the things to look at in the students' records that might be able, as we're scaffolding, to help when we get to that point of, you know, we're moving into high school to maybe start narrowing down the focus a little bit. Um, sure. Up to that point, the IP is really going to be your reference, correct? Mm -hmm. um, and we do know that kids will develop at, at different stages. So some kids, you know, the light bulb goes on at, at 14 or 15, mm -hmm. you know, and then all of a sudden it's, there's new possibilities where maybe you've been tracking in another direction until that point. Mm -hmm. um, do you find that that's, that, often happens that where you're, you're kind of moving in a certain direction or even not even often, but maybe you could just talk about the idea of that. Sure. Sure. I really believe that students should have the opportunity to access both the curriculum that their peers are accessing. So the academics, but also have a chance to develop and, and a chance and support from the school team to develop their employment skills, their independent living skills, social communication, behavior, executive functioning, mm -hmm. um, self-direction, all of that could be part of a high school plan. And especially if you spread that over a six-year period, it gives you time to tackle all those areas, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. But what we see a lot of times is kids being... Uh, they're either going to be on the life skills track or the high school diploma track. It, it's hard for school systems to open up both opportunities, both pathways, if you will. But back to what you need to be looking for in their records, certainly their, their learning profile is important, their learning style. It's really important to understand for them and for the school team but also as it applies to how are they going to do in a, in a job setting or out in the community when, somebody, when they need to ask somebody for help with directions. It's a little point. You know, mm -hmm. Are they able to ask for help in class? Right. And it, so it comes down okay. to really practical items like that. From the home perspective, are they able to get themselves up in the morning and out the door to the school bus or do they need a lot of help from mom and dad to do that? And what kind of steps can mom and dad be taking to, to help them be a little more independent? That means different things for different kids. The, the adaptive behavior scales, uh, the behavior rating scales can also be really important information to look at. You know, how are they doing with regulation? How are they doing with getting along with their friends, uh, listening to teachers, uh, dealing with frustration. So all of those areas are important transition skills, really. Mm -hmm. uh, they're going to show up in future adult settings. 
having an updated assessment, schools go back and forth on that. And they do, you know, some schools are pretty good about updating every three years. Other schools will just say that the evaluation describe, you know, we understand what the student needs to plan for them educationally. We don't need to update. I think it's important to update at the beginning yeah. of high school and at the end of high school. Okay. Um, yeah. And, so those every, yeah. every three years is not common throughout. No people. Ch- I mean, okay. they, they have to discuss it every three years, but mm-hmm. it, it doesn't always mean that they're going to get an updated assessment. Okay. And for families who can afford it, I really prefer a really comprehensive neuropsych. I think that mm-hmm. they have a lot of useful information and can help with the benefits process and also with college accommodations if you're looking at post-secondary. We talk about you know the parents overwhelmed, the amount of information that parents need to have. Um, schools not necessarily providing, and there are outside facilities that people can go to, which is great for people to know, because I don't know that parents know mm-hmm. that these places are there, because they think that the school is the only place, that that's the center in it. As, yeah. it, as it should be providing, if it's not, where can I go? Because right. even the parents that really fight hard, they get exhausted at some point, and it's almost yeah. like self-defeating. You know, That's one end of the spectrum that's really, really frustrating to hear about when you say to parents, you know, be involved from the start, ask questions, kind of stuff. Sometimes it still doesn't get them where they want to be, you know, right. depending upon right. where they're at. But to continue to fight the fight, you know, yeah, uh, these places exist. Go to the outside for some help to get the guidance. We talked a little bit earlier, and I want to go into a little bit more about self-direction. So mm-hmm. these kids being involved in the IAP process. Yes. And, uh, can you speak? Can you speak to that for me? Yeah, absolutely. Students in if in some states and again it's the fourteen or sixteen age range, uh, they are required to be part of their IEP meetings unless everybody agrees that that's not appropriate. So mm-hmm. uh, their their participation is required. And if you've worked with a student ahead of time, that can be an opportunity for them to share that interview with the team. And to talk about what they hope their future will be and what what their skills are, what their strengths are, also what areas they need to work on, you know, what kind of help they would like the school team to provide them. And then I think, you know, depending on the student and the system, uh, for example, in the school that I worked with before moving to North Carolina, students would have an opportunity to develop whole presentations about their past, their present, and what their future was going to be, and practice talking to each other about that, and then doing a big, you know, finale project where teachers would come and see their, they they did a, like a, those three-dimensional poster board Mm-hmm. Um, so engaging students in that way to talk about what their, what their hopes and dreams were for the future, lots of practice talking about, mm-hmm. you know, giving students that opportunity to express their choices, lots of opportunities to make choices. Sometimes we overlook that for our students in special ed, because we feel like 
we know what's best for them and, and that's <laughs> right. what's going to be, right? Yeah, so, right. To, a, yeah. to a major fault. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So even like being able to have a voice in your school schedule, you know, and what electives you want to take, right? Sure, right, right. Yeah. Those kinds of, of activities at the school level in the classroom are really important. Having a, one of our teachers, my, one of my colleagues, did this, just a superb job at helping students prepare for interviews. And she had a, a list of questions. They had to write out the answers or type out. And they just practiced mm -hmm. uh, numerous times, uh, practicing in the job interview and getting feedback. And it just, it was one of my favorite activities. And I think it left students feeling very prepared for that first job interview outside of school. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, having, right. acting yeah. out the scenarios, right, and, and role modeling mm -hmm. these, mm -hmm. these scenarios, right? And that's just you know one example. We did a lot of for parents. We did a lot of presentations. We bring adult service providers in to the okay. school to talk to them about what services they offered. That's what I feel like needs to be done more and more. So that yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's you know if you don't have someone. In that identified role, then you, as you can imagine, that's just another thing on a teacher's plate that is being sure. required. Yeah. Right. So, right. Um, and is that a function of also funding, like where schools decide to put their money or where mm -hmm. they can put the money, depending on how much money they're getting from the state? They might not be able to afford to have such a person on their staff, perhaps, or? Sure. Yeah. I think, think it's funding. I think it's funding. I think it's it's the uh, breadth of knowledge that uh, young teachers bring to the job, you know, yeah. and what the expectation is. So right. if if you've got a, a a novice teacher who's in charge of your high school special ed program and there's no template before her mm -hmm. to fill in, then how right she's not going to have that information. It needs to be more ingrained in the system that this is good just like reading, writing, math. You know, this is what we do for our right. high schoolers. Yeah. Right. There's a lot mm -hmm. more needed in this area, right? And mm -hmm. so it's very overwhelming, as you say. And the fact that it doesn't get the attention, and I know in some places it does get more, like you said, some places right. are excellent with it. But they the fact really that it's are. not like equitable across the board is what's, is what's, so it was surprising to learn so much because I was never really involved in the transition component. I mean, I, mm -hmm. you know, tangentially, but, or maybe just from mid middle school to high school, but never after a secondary. And so finding out a lot from parents um, has been eye opening, you know, about their experiences, mm -hmm. about their negative experiences. And so that's why I really wanted to speak with you because I wanted to know, you know, how to help these people. And I think you've given me some really some great, great advice and some resources that they can go to or just some new knowledge, knowing that there are places outside of the school, which is great, mm -hmm. but that they have to really go to the state, too, and make these demands to their politicians, you know, and the right. governors and things like that of their states. Some kids are going to be higher functioning in the sense that they're going to have a better idea of what it is that mm -hmm. they might from some options and things like that. When it comes to people who are a little bit more involved with a disability, that starts to get into other areas of, you know, maybe more limited options. Mm. If somebody is not necessarily 
ready for a job post-secondary? What mm-hmm. are some of the options that are afforded for, for them? If like sure. academics isn't necessarily for them and maybe a job yet isn't for them. So um, depending on where you live, there mm-hmm. are um, activity programs that are going to be working and supporting you to develop skills to the extent that you can, you know, that within reason right. to, to mirror what other people your age are doing. So, um, but I'll give you an example of a young man I work with who has folks that work with him to help him develop his employment readiness. So he lives at home, staff come to the house and they go out in the community and work on skills. But there's also staff that come and work on uh, personal care routines in the house. So doing a variety of different things just based on what that young man needs and the level of support he needs. Um, He has a pretty extensive plan. His mom had to work really hard to negotiate that level of support. So oftentimes what you'll find is people are sent to, most people know what a senior center activity center looks like, right? They have an Mm -hmm. image of that. You don't hear as much about it for folks with disabilities, but those do exist. Um, They're not ideal. Like they have have types of programs, but they are an opportunity for people to make connections with other people to get out of the house. And, uh, you know, if mom and dad are working, that can be a really critical support. Mm -hmm. That's something that Medicaid Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. takes care of. Yes. Okay. Okay. Most states have... Uh, services earmarked for those students who are graduating from special ed programs. You have to do, you have to do the paperwork. You have to get on the waiting list and all that. But most states have programs for those students. They're not always terrific. You have to really Mm -hmm. navigate that. Yeah. And for example, in Maryland, they earmark X amount of dollars based on knowing how many students are going to be exiting special ed each year to make sure that while they may not be getting all the services that they need, they're, they're going to have that employment support or day have when they exit the school system. Okay. Think about it. It's such a waste. We've spent all this money and time develop, helping that student to develop and then they're just going to sit at home. Right. Well, exactly. Yeah. Right. It, yeah. it shouldn't have to be that way. And and depending on the state, there's some really super cool things going on where students get help to start their own business and yeah. hire their own staff and wow. have this whole, <laughs> you know, concierge level of, of supports. That, and you know what's surprising mm-hmm. about this is that and it's the thing we found out about um, institutions. You can do all this for the same amount of money. So, yeah, yeah. you look at mm-hmm. what you spend to have somebody in an institution as to supporting them in the community. You know, you can do that for mm-hmm. close to the same amount. Now, not always, but 
And the same with with individualized uh, consumer-directed services. Uh, a little bit more work on the family's part, but it's it's highly individualized. Yeah. New York has, you know, the Office of People with Developmental Disabilities, OPWDD. Is that mm-hmm. is different for every state? Like every yes. state has their own version of that? Every state has their own version. I think one thing that is the same that runs throughout all of those states is that that use of Medicaid to fund the services that they're providing to adults with disabilities. Okay. Yeah. So the challenge there is if you move from state to state, you're not like if I, if a student lived in Maryland and they uh, moved to New York, they have to start all over from scratch. Right. It's they're not trans. And the process is, I mean, it's yeah. really a shame because the process yeah. is so long as it is. It could be up to two years before you even get a response sometimes and get a case manager. I mean, I've heard people right. a year, two years. It's a slow process. And it is. so that's another reason why parents really need to be on this earlier and being mm-hmm. in the know of what they need to do because mm-hmm. it's you have to be patient. Um, and then what do you do in the meantime? What services can you get in the meantime um, before you get an approval? and get a right. case manager and, and the whole ball, whole ball of wax. And speaking of which, like, you know, post-secondary, is there, I, I guess what I'm asking is that the collaborating team beyond high school, does that exist? You know, are there people for parents to be able to rely on in these circumstances once they're out of secondary? Yeah, definitely. Um, mm-hmm. All of them are overworked uh, and have huge caseloads, but um, yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, it, which I say that just to to point out that parents still have to be heavily involved to to nurse that system along. But there mm-hmm. are typically uh, there is a care coordinator who is responsible for developing a plan of service with that student, with that young adult or adult, um, and helping them to get connected to an employment program or a dayhab program, if they need residential services, if they need additional services, helping with that, helping with other benefits, mm-hmm. connecting the family to other resources in the community. That That is the role of, and they, it depends on the state, what that person is called. But okay. um, they, they are, and they're through, typically provided through the it, different states call it different things. You have OPWDD uh, in Maryland. It is the Maryland Department of Disabilities. In D.C., it's the Rehab Services Administration and the Department of Disabilities. You're going to be working okay. with vocational rehab and mm-hmm. some Department of Disabilities, whatever it's called. Uh, Voc Rehab is going to help you with some employment services. They're short term, and that will help you to transition into long term uh, funded employment or dayhab services. Mm-hmm. And the and that's where the DDA comes in, the or the OPWDD. Right. Yeah. So I know that the parents need to be involved, but is there guidance to that place starting before graduation? There the should be. I'm. Yeah. That? Yeah. Ideally, those those representatives are part of the uh, ending IEP meetings. 
and they're getting a summary of performance from the school for that student. The families are getting that summary of performance when that student leaves the school, um, either through graduation and a diploma or a certificate of completion. It's hard for those folks to get to meetings uh, because of what I was, you know, mentioning before with the staffing. But mm-hmm. ideally, I mean, when when the whole special ed law was envisioned, IDEA, um, mm-hmm. the ideal thought was that that those adult service providers were working with the school teams early on to connect so that when that student left, everybody knew everybody. They were all on the same page and there was a a plan. Yeah. Right. So, so that's the ideal. That's the perfect, (laughs) that's the perfect world scenario. Yeah. Right. And we know that doesn't happen in every case. And then also, you know, when we factor in socioeconomic aspect of this, you know, there are people that are going to be less informed because of where they are socioeconomically, where the school system is, the mm-hmm. kind of money that the schools are getting, all these things are going to impact. So there's not equity, obviously, we know this is not equity across the board for all families. And it's a, it's a large system. And mm-hmm. a lot of parents are kind of left out. And then you have language barriers, you have all these different things that, that come into play. Could you just maybe comment a little bit about that, your thoughts on, on that? Sure. I think... Um... Just at a practical level, those families who are dealing with socioeconomic barriers are pretty stressed already. Uh, they're working. Uh, they don't have time to uh, nudge teachers along and participate in numerous meetings and fill out lots of paperwork. They might not even have access to the internet or a computer. So mm-hmm. they're going to need more more support than maybe another student who has a parent who is more available and have has those resources there are right. lots of there are lots of supports out there for those families but they have to know how to work the system that's the thing they need to how to work the system and and if they're not mm-hmm. aware of it they don't even know who to go to right sure. so if the school's not offering it then the school gets to skate on it right so because <laughs> right. you know i've seen plenty of families from you know, other countries that don't necessarily understand the system, they don't know the language right. very well, and they just acquiesce to whatever the school says. And, you know, it's frustrating because in the past, there's been some that I've tried to inform that you kind of need to ask these questions or, and, you know, push it a little bit. But it's, I think it can be overwhelming, it can be a little intimidating or a lot intimidating for these, some of these families. And so their child really misses out. Well, and there's a, there, there can be a cultural component as well. Mm-hmm based on the, yes. their their belief system sure. about disability and all of right. that. So that huge. can get in the way. Yeah. It yeah. Is huge. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up because it is yeah. huge. Um, just even talking about parental responsibilities, who, which parent this should kind of fall on the, on the shoulders of. Right. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes mm-hmm. it's the mom more, time, right. more times than right. not, it's the mom. And so she's having to do everything and that's cultural. That's, and even in places you wouldn't necessarily feel it was cultural, it still happens, right? The mom still oh, gets yeah. a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 school systems, they can be catty sometimes. And if if mm-hmm. a mom is some kind of scattered or not organized because she's dealing with a lot of other things. Yeah. Yeah. So 
it, it can help to have an advocate involved in, the, in those cases. Well, then that's the last thing I want to talk to you about because I appreciate your time and, and uh, I don't want to keep you all day here, <laughs> but advocacy is really, really important. And mm-hmm. would you encourage parents, just any parent really, to, to have an advocate just so they're aware of what, what's going on and just so they get what they can get from, from the system? I think, I think it changes the uh, dynamic yeah. at the table, so to speak. Um, you know, it's very overwhelming for parents to sit at a table with 10 other professionals talking about their kid, which, you know, we all know that's like talking about us. There are, our children are an extension right. of ourselves and it's intimidating. And also schools are not always forthcoming with what they what is supposed to be happening for the student. So I, I think it definitely helps. And there are, you know, f- for some families, that's not a possibility, but there are free programs that offer that support as well. But I definitely would encourage that. Or even talking to an advocate beforehand to know what you should be asking. Maybe you don't mm-hmm. involve that person at the meeting. Um, right. but you, you have that been pers- instructed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The more I'm seeing, the more I'm feeling like, you know, the importance of an advocate is, is coming into play in my mind, you know, just to mm-hmm. even have, like you said, just as a, just as a resource and a reference. Um, do you have any thing that you'd like to leave parents with as far as the transition process, just some last thought or something that you um, feel like might be helpful for them? I will say for um, that there are a lot of resources out there. You can, I mean, once you start Googling it, you can find a lot of free information and webinars. Rich's program does a wonderful conference, Diamonds in the Rough, every year. It has great resources uh, related to transition. And they they've really, Rich and his group have been real forerunners in that and in providing those educational opportunities to families. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're a tremendous Great. resource. Okay. And if people wanted to reach you, can they, can they reach out to ask you questions or to talk to you or confer Absolutely. with you Absolutely. You're available for that? Yes. How yes. can they reach you then? Um, you I, I would say just email um, Gretchen at ericlevineassociates.com or through Rich's program. We, okay. I, I work with Rich and I also, um, work on my own. So either way is fine. This has been such a pleasure, Gretchen. It really is. Oh, thank I, you. I'm so grateful for the information that you provided. I'm, I'm grateful like nice for the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. My pleasure. You can come back anytime you want. If you have anything new that's updated that you feel like you want to share with people, but, uh, it's been a great, great time. I wish you all the best and I'll, I'll be in touch. Okay. I know I'll probably come up with more questions after this <laughs> that I may not have asked, but really, really, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. I want to thank you again for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll join me each week to hear about topics new to you or close to your heart. I hope this podcast might inspire you to face your days more confidently, storing a greater sense of self-love, mindfulness, 
an outpouring of goodness and positive role modeling for your children while remembering to attend to the areas of your own mental, physical, and if you're inclined, spiritual health, enabling you to be all you hope to be for them. All music heard on today's show comes from Jason Shaw at Audionautics.com. Remember to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Special Ed Rising and on my website, specialedrising.com. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. You can contact me directly with questions, comments, or if you're interested in parent coaching through my email, specialedrising at gmail.com or my contact pages on Facebook or my website. If you'd like to share some of your success stories with the audience, please send them to my email. Let's show the world what's possible. Also, let me know if there's anything you'd like to learn more about. And until next time, peace and keep rising. (laughs) 